Welcome to Tranos and the Lived Experience, a podcast confronting current events, politics, comedy, and calamity, all from the perspective of a trans titaness. She's a verbal black belt, skilled in the art of roasting, the hellmouth, doomsayer, CEO of the Amazon position. Here's your host, Cameron Ellen Terrell. Welcome to Tranos and the Lived Experience. I'm your host, Cameron Eline Maharet Jarrell, a.k.a. Tranos. Say it with your whole chest or be stuck in a weird contortion for the rest of eternity. This is Tranos and the Lived Experience, the show that explores my mental breakdown. Um, We're about eight days outside of um a huge event for me, my upcoming uh, facial feminization. And today's episode was supposed to be named Batman, but I, I'm going to change that. Uh, but before we get into that, this show is brought to you by the Meeting of Music and Marijuana. Uh, today's music selection is brought to you by Kai, which is A-R-A-N-K-A-I, and the song is called Contortionist. Um, the strain is, where is it? I have it saved because I threw away the package. Um... Cherry Gorilla, also known as Cherry Gorilla Glue, it's a hybrid marijuana strain made by crossing two famous strains, GG4, aka Gorilla Glue Number Four, and Black Cherry Pie. I've had both of these strains um, on my show in the past. The effects of Cherry Gorilla are more calming than energizing. Consuming, um, consuming said um, strain offers an incredible high with instantaneous feelings of euphoria before eventually taking you in a sleepy state. Cherry Gorilla is a 17% THC. Don't sleep on a 17%. It still fucks you up. With that being said, we're going to jump into this episode, which I am renaming on the spot. It is Gender Contortionist. As I'm getting ready to go under the knife uh, for 12 hours, it causes me to like look back on life. And... I realized that there was something that I became really good at, and it's gender contortion. I stayed in a flexed or stretched state, identifying in public as a male, a cis male, for way longer than I needed to. And the after effects were strains in relationships, uh, strains in self-image, dysphoria from the effects of things that I did to my own body just to f- pass just to pass in society. And as I'm getting ready to like walk into the surgery and completely switch a lot of things about my life, my face, uh, minimal body contouring, those kind of things are going to be happening. I just feel like this, like this strange release. Like I feel like I am able to stand and fully extend for the first time. And it's invigorating to say the least, but at the same time, it does remind me of all the strain I've put on myself over the years. Um, I thought like Batman was supposed to be the title of this episode. And we were going to talk about how bad of a man I was. Um, And that's relative. People will be like, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is like my illusion wasn't complete purposefully there were like there were signs there were symbols there were 
things that I did to try to like break through to people all the time that I wasn't cis. But I had to stay balled up. I had to stay in this torsion. I had to like stretch myself beyond my means to make people view my illusion as such. Um, it brings me back to like the first time I ever walked into a UPW locker room. Uh, beforehand, I was very effeminate, very, uh, a lot of sway in my hips, a lot of hands on my hips, a lot of, um, lisping S's. And I had been warned, oh, you're going to be around a bunch of men. They're going to suss you out. They're going to know your truth. They're going to know your T and they're not going to accept you. And that's when I, I bent myself into this weird pretzel that day to try to be as masculine as possible. And <clears throat> I don't know if there's any listeners who might be around from that exact day, but it was um not even UPW locker room. It was an NMW locker room. Um, I spent the whole day doing my hair and makeup before I got there. Um, I was dressed like the crow because I was like, oh, that's the most masculine thing I've ever seen. So... I'm going to be this poetic vengeance monster. <laughs> and, and I got there and I'm like wearing like leather and I'm all taped up and I got the makeup on. My hair's done. And I walk into the locker room and guys are just kind of walking around in like store bought singlets. <laughs> um, their hair's not done. I was like, oh, like I'm doing I'm doing man wrong. I'm too theatrical. I'm way too theatrical. Like I spent hours like hours getting ready and nobody noticed how much effort I put into what I was doing. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, Oh yeah, it's, it's effortless for them. It comes easy to them. Like I had to work really hard to appear very masculine. And even then with all the work, there was like all these little like intricate holes. Like I was like a theater kid in a room full of jocks. It was really, it was really apparent to me and I thought it was apparent to everyone else. So I butched up and I deepened my voice and I like walked with less like sway and I held my hands to my side. Like they were always kind of like in like this, like, like fighter stance. Like I was always ready to throw a punch. Um, it was the little things, the little things that like started to like bend me into like this weird, this weird shape. That was as close to cis as I could possibly get. But to me, it felt so far away. Um, the first time we did like matches, I ran through some matches. I ended up wrestling um, the late Brody Lee in like one of my first like tryout matches for NMW. Neither one of us were part of NMW at the time, but we were allowed to come in and wrestle each other. And we did. And like almost like fucking killed him, killed him with a frog splash, which he told me about years later. Uh, I was so much smaller than him. I just kind of threw caution in the wind and I didn't know anything about pockets yet. So I just kind of landed on this man, um, like all 135 pounds of me. He was a giant even back then. Uh, no facial hair, was wearing a football jersey. He had a singlet on, beat up wrestling shoes. And here I am wearing like kickwear pants. Uh, I, I made a tape. <laughs> I made a tape like body garter, like or not body garter. What, was the, what are these things called? Um corset i taped a corset on my body like made completely from tape um full crow makeup we wrestled this like kind of cool match we 
both kind of didn't know what we were doing, but we did our best. I get out. I'm sitting on the side with my legs crossed and like Brody walks past and goes, what are you doing? And I was like, what? He's like, what's up with your legs? <laughs> and I was like, uh, nothing. He was like, ha, you're gay. And like, he laughed it off. So I was like, oh, he found me. But I just kind of laughed with him. And that became like a running joke between us. Like I said in a couple episodes in the past, like he always used to remind me of how gay he thought I was when he first met me. Um, it's because my illusion was really bad. But he was the only one who was aware. Um, that's just like a, the nicest, the nicest way someone's ever called me out was like this, like this big smile on his face and his eyes kind of lit up. And he was like, you're so gay. And he walked away. And like we like that start that was like the start of a friendship like we didn't see each other for a couple months after that and then we both showed up at RCW and there was a drastic change from the first time he met me to then for me like I, I learned from that instance even though it was said in jest and he was being really nice it, I took it to heart to oh no like there's a crack I have to fill it so nobody knows so like in that six months I went from like constantly sitting with my legs crossed constantly with my hand on my hip and like being really like high register like queer like my voice was very like hey how you doing like oh yeah like and it went from that to like this in like six months um i watched my posture i became more aware of how much space i took up when i was sitting down or how much space i was taking up in conversations and i made sure to like mimic some of the things that were being said and done around me. And I am not proud of that. Um, I use the word faggot more than any other person in the room to throw everybody else off that I was actually what they were talking about. Um, thinking back on it now, it's just, I knew Brody was trying to make me comfortable with the joke. And he did. I felt very comfortable around him and I was able to be more of myself around him than anyone else in the locker rooms. Um, I used to live with a guy who we both started wrestling on a tag team together. Uh, his name is Tiger Smith. He played on my gender contortion constantly. He was always making comments about how I walked, how I looked, how I talked always kind of making fun of me behind my back. He made me feel very uncomfortable. So living with him, I had to be on guard all the time. And this is when I became stuck in my contortions. Like I had no outlet, no like release where I could just be myself all the time. I had to live with a homophobe who did not have a problem with like putting me on blast in front of other people. Like I said it in past episodes, Tiger Smith outed me multiple times before my transition out at me as queer multiple times on the internet in locker rooms uh, at restaurants, wherever he got a chance to like kind of punch down on me, even though like technically career for career, I'm the better wrestler person to person. I'm the better person. And when we both identified as men, even though my illusion wasn't exactly that an illusion, I was the better man. But I let like, this lesser make me feel lesser and that thus put me into another situation where I had to like reach and stretch to grab this thing that was like felt impossible to me. Um, it didn't come as second nature. 
the my entire illusion was practiced. It was thought about. Like I spent so much time thinking about how I was going to reach, how I was going to fit. Could I get? Could I pour? myself into this vessel and leave out the queerness was the thing that I was constantly doing. And it constantly came up. So not only was I like a gender contortionist, I was also contorting my sexuality. Like I wasn't allowed to care about or love the people that I actually loved in public. So I was constantly like maneuvering to like figure out how to be this thing that I wasn't comfortable with while also remaining myself and if you learn anything from hiding and stealthing for years is that becoming successful at doing so means that you sacrificed lots of things to do it i sacrificed my relationships i sacrificed my voice i sacrificed and not just like voice when people use it metaphorically i like sacrificed my actual voice the voice that you hear now was part of the illusion, was part of the contortion. I had to stretch and destroy vocal cords to get the timbre that I have now, to get the bass that I have now. And even with vocal lessons, this is as feminine as it's going to get. And dysphoria constantly reminds me that you did this to yourself. As much as we are always talking about like the transition from a uh, cis uh to trans or like from passing as cis to trans, we don't talk about the sacrifices that like pre-transition caused. I gave into like a workout regimen. I gave into ideals. I gave, I gave up on certain relationships. Um, even to this day, like I'm asexual because of dysphoria. I'm asexual because of the uncomfortability I feel around this body that I've had to like contort to other people's ideas constantly. Eight days from now, swollen and bruised. I am I, my my doctors and them are under instructions that I am to see myself in a mirror almost immediately after I wake up. I want to remember everything. I want to remember the scars and the bruises. Oh, cause I want to remind myself that this was also the last, the last sacrifice, the last, like all the pain that I'm going to go through is so that I don't ever have to contort myself to fit in someone else's box again. That's important to me. Um, There's a lot of terrible, terrible memories attached to the face that I look at. There's a lot of pride in things too, but more often than not, like, I get to look in the mirror and see, currently when I look in the mirror, what I see is shame. I see heartbreak. I see the creature being held back by a warden that they, they created themselves. Like I see my CO 
I imprisoned myself and then created my guards, like created the number one guard, the warden of my prison was Gabriel Saint. Even though like I at the time felt like I was being protected, I was being imprisoned by my need to fit in, my need to be what others wanted me to be. And I'm letting go of that shit for the sake of self, if nothing else. Preservation. Because that's what it felt like when I was younger. I felt like it was self-preservation to become this thing, to, to stealth, to man, to man suit. I get to let all of that go in like eight days. And I'm terrified, but I'm so excited to like see myself. I mean it like literally as soon as I wake up in recovery, I've asked that I can look into a mirror and they're like, it might be shocking and traumatizing to you. And I was like, nothing will be as shocking and traumatizing as the life that I had to live to get here. All the pitfalls and all the things that people tried being painted as a monster constantly. I finally get to see it. I finally get to see what it was all about. I get to see what all the sacrifice was for. And then I get to watch it grow. I get to watch it change. That's powerful. Now, before we go any further... I'm going to take a hit of this marijuana and take the edge off a little bit. So if you hear click, click, cough, cough, you know what the fuck this show does. Be an adult. Hold on. All right. Oh, shit. All right. I've had a lot of time to sit and, like, think about this. The countdown has been going on for, like, four months. And we're so close. It's, like, eight days away. And I'm supposed to be talking with my team at some point in the next two days about accommodations things of that matter. And, like, it's, like, really, like, the first time since I was attacked that I'm staying in a hospital. And that's triggering, traumatic, but it's also a sacrifice to be reborn. That's what this is for me. It's like a rebirth. And no, it's not going to go to my head. I'm not going to start, like, acting out. I'm going to be happier, more comfortable in my skin is what I'm looking for. I spent so much time feeling uncomfortable about things that were like a part of me that I erased them and now I get to accentuate one. I get to look into the mirror and see Cameron for the first time. Stitches, bruises, black eyes and all. 
It's so freeing. I feel like like I was one in one of those eighties like variety shows and I was like a contortionist on stage and I like put myself into a box and then everybody forgot about me for two decades. That's how this feels. It feels like I'm like someone found the box and is letting me out for the first time. And I'll be able to stand for the first time in less than eight days. To move, to breathe easier. To see like the persona and the face that I like had to hide for half of my life is like crazy. The way I, the way I, the relationships that I were in, I was in, I always had to like twist and bend myself to someone else's will. I had to become the protector. I had to be the voice of reason. I had to be the person who took like abuse from literally almost every relationship I've been in, like stemming back as far as I can remember. Uh, the, the lack of love that I felt and the familiarity that was brought from it. I stated it before, like, it took me stepping away from, like, intimacy to understand what love was. I thought I had to be of service to be, to, like, to be loved. So a lot of the times I was just a doormat for people. There was a period of time when I was, like, first out of my own, like, first out of foster care. I was dating some girl, and, like, her whole fucking family moved in my house. And I loved them. But they did not love me. And then there was <laughs> the, the, you got to have somebody. You can't be by yourself. So I dated this girl for a very short time and found out she was like a whole Nazi. Like literally, like it was, we were, hadn't even been together for like a week. And she was like a whole Nazi. <laughs> and I was like, what, like, how did I miss because I was so intent on stealthing that I didn't realize that she was too. Like she was just stealthing hatred. Like I had known this girl for like years, but we had only dated for like weeks because in those weeks, I guess like she was like, Oh, you're like my significant other. Now I don't have to like, I don't have to like stealth so hard. So she just kind of let it out. And I was like, Oh, I, Oh, I can't abide by that. Then there was the alcoholic, the abusive alcoholic. I've dated several of those. Because I was told that I had to be in this kind of relationship with this kind of person, it was almost like I sought out the most harmful person just not to seem gay in public. Not to seem trans in public. I always thought like, oh, if I find this person with flaws, then they'll accept my flaws. But our flaws weren't the same. My flaw was shame. Their flaw was like inability to love, inability to cope, inability to deal with emotions. So they did things like drink and drugs and use people. And notice like I'm not using any names. I'm just stating that the, the, what being a, a gendered 
contortionist for me at the time. It meant that I had to put up with shit to hide who I was. That's just what it was. Like, it was like almost like I was like punishing myself. Like, I knew that these issues kind of on the surface, I was able to read that they existed. But I would be like, no, love will change it. Love will change it. And like, there's things about me that they don't know that they might not like. So I guess it's youth and not having like somebody walk you through this. That's why trans elders are so important. Like the sharing of their experiences are so important because like the things that I went through, I can tell another trans youth and they will understand that these are things and pitfalls that they need to avoid to thrive. Like we don't have to punish ourselves. The world does enough of that. And no matter what time period, I wish I can go back and talk to me before I created him. And no matter what time period we do this in, we're going to face the same amount of scrutiny. It might feel like progression has made it easier now, but a lot of black trans women, it's still 1985 for us. It's still 1985. We're still dying at an alarming rate. We're still not being allowed to work in spaces, even though people say we can. The EEOC is supposed to be backing us and all that other stuff. Like, like, just talk to like a hundred trans women and ask them about like employment, just employment, housing. Ask them about those things, and I think that I put myself through a lot running from that, thinking that in the future there would be less of it. There's never going to, I'm black and I'm trans. There's never going to be less situations of transphobia everywhere. There's going to be less response to it and fear from me. That's about it. I'm going to be like persecuted. I would rather be persecuted for being my whole self, my entire self, my authentic self. Then they have to like live in this in between to like make some people comfortable. Because that's what I did. Like that's the the ultimate decision I made after being attacked was that I wasn't going to try anymore. And I'm not saying like try to pass. I'm saying like try at happiness. I'm saying like try at com- making myself comfortable. I felt like there was never going to be any comfort for me from the world, and I was right. That comfort shouldn't come from the world. She come from within. And like on the cusp of 44, I figured it out. And I think what these what these episodes have been for me is my ability to like speak to younger trans people. Share my experiences and the pitfalls of it. And I know a lot of it sounds like some like weird thing that needs to be decoded, but you understand what I'm saying. You understand what we've been talking about. Because some of the things that I've mentioned, uh, you've had to do. You don't have to do them as long as I did. I look back on my current life and I I realize how much time, how much time this stealthing consumed in my life. 
how many anxiety attacks I had about like rudimentary things. Only to be told, like the illusion that I was so worried about surprised a lot of people. And I mean, it's like with my whole heart, the people that you're worried about losing respect for you. The people that you're worried about losing respect for you are not like the greatest. So what's there to lose at the end of the day? I had to live through it to figure it out. Like I remember, and I'm going to say a name on this one. I looked up to this man in the wrestling industry before I learned who he really was, before I figured out who he was. I had heard his name and the rumblings of him around Western New York for like years before like I like really got into the, the circles of, of this region. Um, Rick Matrix. This man was a crook at the end of the day, a racist a womanizer, a serial cheater, just a despicable human being. And I was worried at some point in my timeline about him finding out what I was and him not liking me. So when I came out, he would laugh like directly in my face. And it like gave him this boost of manhood that he felt like he was better than me. But then in my mind, I had to take it like, can I res- should I respond to this in anger or should I take it for what it is? I, my full authentic self, the only fault that he can find in me is that he dehumanizes me because he thinks that because I'm trans, I'm somehow lesser than him. Even though I've always, even in my illusion, been a better man than him. In his mind, I'm a man. The illusion, no matter how strong, like how weak I thought it was, was strong enough for him to somehow believe that his loss of respect would affect me. I was worried about like a man who made racist comments in locker rooms constantly, a man who went out of his way to like be shitty to younger wrestlers, stick them with bills, not pay them, those kind of things. Abused him in public spaces. I bent my will when I was young, believing that like this person could be a hero of mine and then found out like he was a weak, a weak, flawed man. Now I'm supposed to be like, oh my God, like I lost the respect of Brick Matrix. But at the end of the day, like I lost the respect of Brick Matrix. Who gives a shit? I put on this like stealthy mask husk. And then when I look back at it, it was like, for who? Don't put yourself through that. I know all of this is tied to like some retrospect I'm having because I'm going under the knife, but you don't have to be going under the knife to ask yourself these questions or to take on like your authentic self or to change the perspective that you see about you. Hell yeah, this shit has been hard. Hell yeah, like, my transition changed a lot of things. 
I swear I'm happier. Life just became just every day. Like it was like getting ready for a wrestling show that never ended. I was constantly on all the time. I had to be on all the time. I don't have to do that anymore. There's other things that come with it where people require you to pass to their standards, but I don't have to do that either. Eight days. Feels good. And with that being said, my name is Kamrayim Yaleen Maharat Jarrell, a.k.a. Tranos. <laughs> Say with your whole chest, or witness me anew. And this has been Tranos and the Lived Experience. The show that no longer contorts. Well, not for free. Wow.